Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 111, When Boston Invented Playgrounds. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss the late 19th century revolution in play that was born in Boston. In an era when urban children had few spaces to play except in the alleys and courtyards around their tenements, and child labor meant that many kids had no opportunities to play at all, an immigrant doctor inspired a Boston woman's group to take up the topic of play. From its humble beginnings in a single sand pile in the North End, the playground movement grew to a quasi-scientific pursuit, until it was finally adopted as a national goal. By the early 20th century, safe playgrounds with structured, supervised play were seen as vital to children's moral and educational development. But before we talk about playgrounds, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a book called Inventing the Charles River by Carl Hagland. As we get into the details of Boston's playground movement, one public playground we'll talk about was built as part of Boston's late 19th century transformation of the Charles River Basin. This transformation is the main focus of Inventing the Charles River, which was written by Carl Hagland and published by the MIT Press in 2002. Over the course of the 19th century, the sleepy tidal marsh of the Back Bay and the Charles River Basin was reinvented as an industrial waterway, then reinvented again as a gem in Boston's emerald necklace. Hagelin's book is lavishly illustrated with historic maps, photos, and illustrations showing each of these transformations. Watch as bridges begin to crisscross the river in its final miles, then dams create the industrial back bay. Finally, follow in the footsteps of landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted as he designs the Charles Bank and the Charles River Esplanade that we know today. Throughout the book, the author highlights the tension between progress, industrial uses, railroads, highways, and preservation, recreational uses and open spaces. When the book was published in 2002, encroachment by highways on the recreational spaces along the Charles was a real and raw concern. The Big Dig was still underway, and the I-93 crossing over the Charles was still up for debate. A plan called Scheme Z called for multiple tiers of ramps soaring over 100 feet above the river. This scheme was eventually replaced by today's iconic Zakem Bridge, but the debate is reflected in Hagelin's narrative. Here's how the MIT Press describes the book. The Charles River Basin, extending nine miles upstream from the harbor, has been called Boston's Central Park. Yet few realize that this apparently natural landscape is a totally fabricated public space. 200 years ago, the Charles was a tidal river, edged by hundreds of acres of salt marshes and mudflats. Inventing the Charles River describes how, before the creation of the basin could begin, the river first had to be imagined as a single public space. The new esplanades along the river changed the way Bostonians perceived their city, and the basin, with its expansive views of Boston and Cambridge, became an iconic image of the metropolis. The book focuses on the precarious balance between transportation planning and stewardship of the public realm. Long before the esplanades were realized, great swaths of the river were given over to industrial enterprises and transportation, mill ponds, bridges, landfills, and a complex network of road and highway bridges. In 1929, Boston's first major highway controversy erupted when a four-lane road was proposed as part of a new esplanade, 
At 20-year intervals, three riverfront road disputes followed, successively more complex and disputatious, culminating in the lawsuits over Scheme Z, the Big Dig's plan for 18 lanes of highway ramps and bridges over the river. More than 400 photographs, maps, and drawings illustrate past and future visions for the Charles and document the river's place in Boston's history. Now, the current Amazon price for a new copy is still almost $50. That's a nice discount over the original list price of $63, but this still might be a good volume to look for at your local library or even a used bookshop. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a talk at the JP branch of the Boston Public Library, co-sponsored by both the Roxbury Historical Society and the Jamaica Plain Historical Society. And it has a connection to Joseph Warren, our favorite patriot. If you need to brush up on who Joseph Warren was, you can check out our interview with Warren biographer Christian Despina in episode 103. In a nutshell, he was a prominent physician, but also a raving patriot who ran a spy network, dispatched Paul Revere on his famous ride, and died a martyr's death at the Battle of Bunker Hill. He was also a very handsome man. Joseph Warren and his pioneering physician brother John were both born in Roxbury on a farm and orchard. A generation later, John's son, John Collins Warren, also a pioneering physician and founder of Harvard Medical School and Mass General, inherited the land. The ancestral home was in rough shape, so he leveled it and built a new estate of native Roxbury pudding stone in 1846. In modern times, the elegant house has been used as office space, and it has changed hands several times in later years, most recently in 2016, we believe. The house itself will be the topic of the talk at the JPBPL, which will be led by PhD student Maddie Webster, who is studying Boston history. According to the JP Historical Society website, this talk is the culmination of a 2018 research fellowship at the Nichols House Museum. It will focus on the historical significance of the 1846 Warren House in its own right and detail some of the accomplishments of generations of Warrens. The lecture will also highlight the Warren House's connection to the Nichols family. For 16 years, Arthur and Elizabeth Nichols called the Warren House home raising their children and building Arthur's medical practice there before relocating to Beacon Hill in 1885. This talk will bring attention to the family's stewardship of the Warren House and also discuss the deliberate and unintentional ways in which they celebrated the significance of their historic home. The talk will be held at 2 p.m. on Saturday, January 5th at the BPL branch at 30 South Street in Jamaica Plain. It's free and open to the public, and refreshments will be served. Walk from the Orange Line at Green Street or take the 39 bus. And now it's time for this week's main topic. This week's topic was inspired by a listener named Joni, who tweeted at us a few weeks ago with a question. At Hub History, have you ever heard about the 1886 playground or sandpit mentioned in the discussion below? Any idea where it may have been? Then Joni's tweet linked to a discussion on the Ask a Historian subreddit where people were discussing the history of children's playgrounds. One comment said, The first playgrounds were in Berlin and were piles of sand in public parks, inspired by Froebel's nation of gardens for children to explore. A group of women philanthropists took the idea from Germany and had a pile of sand set up in a Boston neighborhood in 1885. 
Now, we didn't know where the sand pile was, and in fact had never heard of the sand pile, but we started digging. Get it? (laughs) Before long, we were up to our necks in the history of the playground movement in America. Though, as an early playground activist wrote, playgrounds are now so universal, natural, inevitable, that it seems as if there never could have been a beginning to them any more than to perpetual motion. It actually turns out that the origin of the playground movement is right here in Boston. The story of how Boston invented playgrounds has to begin with Dr. Marie Zachrzewska, who was born and raised in Berlin, Germany, of a Polish family. As a little girl, Marie had been whip-smart, with teachers consistently praising her performance in school. However, as a girl with a very traditional father in mid-19th century Europe, she was forced to withdraw from school at age 13. Her mother eventually found herself working as a midwife, and Marie would assist her in cases, taking meticulous notes and reading any medical texts she could get her hands on. As she entered her 20s, she pressed forward through multiple rejections until she was finally accepted into a midwife training program at the Royal Charity Hospital of Berlin. She was their youngest student, and she appeared to be brilliant, graduating at the head of her class. At just 22 years old, she was appointed to a professorship and made director of the hospital's midwife training program. However, her male colleagues resented her, and she was forced out after just a few months. Disappointed and hoping to find a place with more opportunities for women, Marie moved to the U.S. in 1853. Spoiler alert, America in 1853 wasn't exactly full of opportunities either. Nevertheless, she persisted, enrolling in medical school at Case Western Reserve University, one of the few physician training programs that would accept women at that time. There, she taught herself English in the evenings while learning medicine during the day, eventually graduating in 1856. Marie would now fondly be known as Dr. Zock. An article published by the Jamaica Plain Historical Society describes how Dr. Zock after a short stint in New York, ended up putting down roots in Boston. Her contacts in Boston led to an appointment in 1859 as professor of obstetrics at the New England Female Medical College, which had been founded in 1848 as the first medical college for women in the world. Side note, longtime listeners will recognize the New England Female Medical College as the alma mater of Dr. Rebecca Davis Lee Crumpler, America's first black woman physician. Check out episode 18 for more on her. The article continues. Dr. Zakshrevska's dream was to open the medical profession to women. But the promises of the college were not fulfilled. Her attempts to change it from a midwife training school to a mainstream medical school with practical clinical training were opposed by the owner and trustees. Dr. Zock resigned and began work to found the New England Hospital for Women and Children, a center where women physicians would treat women patients. Marie Zakshrevska's hospital opened in 1862 at 60 Pleasant Street in Boston as a training hospital of the highest possible standards that would allow women to enter the best medical colleges in the world. Irregular physicians such as homeopaths, phrenologists, and magnetists were not allowed to associate with the institution. It was the only hospital in Boston to provide obstetrics, gynecology, and pediatrics, as well as a complete medical ward and surgical wards. 
Dr. Zock's experience in science and sanitary conditions made the hospital a leader in preventing contagious fevers and assured the success of the enterprise. In the 1870s, the hospital moved to a shady hilltop overlooking Columbus Avenue in Roxbury, where it is known today as the Dimmick Community Health Center. Dr. Zock apparently traveled widely to study medical techniques and public health practices in the major cities of the world. And in a 1922 history of the American play movement, Clarence Rainwater cites one of these trips as the inspiration for an experiment in play. The one provision for play which has been most frequently designated as the origin of the movement is the establishment of sand gardens in Boston. Dr. Marie Zakshrevska, while visiting in Berlin during the summer in 1885, observed heaps of sand in the public parks in which the children of both the rich and the poor were permitted to play, under supervision of the police. As a result of her report by letter to Mrs. Kate Gannett Wells, chairman of the Executive Committee of the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association, a large heap of sand was placed in the yards of the Parmenter Street Chapel and the West End Nursery. Kate Gannett Wells, in turn, wrote in the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association's 1885 annual report, Last summer, at the suggestion of Dr. Marie Zakshrevska, and in accordance with the plan in Berlin which has proved so useful to children, a large heap of sand was placed in the yard attached to the Parmenter Street Chapel. An average of 15 children connected with the chapel came there three days a week, through July and August, and, under the guidance of Mrs. Gamble, dug in the sand with their little wooden shovels and made countless sand pies, which were remade the next day with undismayed alacrity. They sang their songs and marched in their small processions, and, when weary, were gathered in the motherly arms of the matron. Their plays were almost as much of a delight as a picnic, better in a hygienic point of view, for they had the air, the sun, the sand, the fun, and no cake. The same plan was tried at the West End Nursery, but as the children there were hardly two years old, they cared little for it. Your committee hope, however, that the success of the experiment in Parmenter Street may have sufficiently demonstrated the usefulness of the sand garden to secure its adoption elsewhere. Playing in the dirt is the royalty of childhood, but poverty infringes upon the right, especially at the North End. For children who had not inherited that royalty, childhood might hold little time to play or none at all. Children might be expected to help with the housework or farm work, and when they were a little older, they might be expected to go to work work. In his study of the play movement, Clarence Rainwater commented that opportunities for play were actually declining in the mid-19th century, especially for city kids. In the cities, where a consciousness of the social situation first arose, the behavior of children, youths, and adults during their leisure hours and holidays frequently became delinquent conduct, play became crime, while leisure pursuits became commercialized to an extent without precedent. The women of the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association, which we'll refer to as the MEHA, also believed that city kids were running wild in the streets. They wrote that their experiment sand garden was a favorable alternative for the amusement of the younger children of the poorer classes, who ordinarily play in the streets, where they are exposed to accidents and to unfavorable moral influences. 
Children had, of course, found ways to play for as long as children had existed. Early in our history, Boston Common was home to children's games, alongside grazing cattle and sheep. However, for most kids, the only spaces available for play were the courtyards of their tenement houses or the streets and alleyways outside. Indeed, the photo collection at the Boston Public Library reveals pictures of young children in the 19th and early 20th centuries playing on shipwrecks along the harbor, building forts out of trash in squalid alleys, petting stray dogs, and skipping across the frigid waters of Boston Harbor by hopping from one free-floating ice cake to another, none of which seem like safe or constructive activities. Free-range kids were the norm back then, but it came at the price of injury, or worse, from accidents. And the worst-case scenario played out in the 1870s, when the teenage serial killer Jesse Pomeroy began torturing and murdering unsupervised young children in Boston. You can hear more about him in episode 55. The innovation of the playground was not only providing space for play, in fact, Brookline had appropriated land for children's play by 1872, but also providing structured activities, equipment, and supervision. The 1887 MEHA Annual Report explains how the structure and supervision of the new playgrounds were an improvement over the free play that children were used to. Though but a poor compensation for fields and flowers, sand gardens are full of enjoyment to the children who, without them, would have neither sand nor earth for dirt pies and miniature forts. That the joys of our playgrounds rival those of green fields, or that our sand heaps are a fitting substitute for the wide sea beach, we do not claim. But we are an enthusiastic committee, and believe in our plan as a saving force for the children. As for many hours during the hot, sultry months, 400 children were kept away from the associations of the gutters and the wharves, were made happy, and taught something of honesty, unselfishness, and gentle manners. In fact, 1887 marked a major expansion of Boston's nascent playgrounds. From a single sand pile in 1884 to three sand gardens in 1885, the movement had now expanded to a total of 10 play spaces for children in 1887. In some of these spaces, the activities available to stimulate young minds went well beyond the sand piles that Kate Gannett Wells had called the royalty of childhood. The expanded mission prompted a name change for the supervising MEHA committee. The Committee on Playgrounds can report much pleasure and many gentle influences granted to the little children of the poor during the eight weeks when the schools were closed. Seven schoolyards situated in the neighborhoods where children swarm were open for three hours on four fair days of each week. A kindly matron was ready to welcome the children and offered them sand heaps and shovels, balls, tops, skipping ropes, reins, beanbags, building blocks, flags to march under, and transparent slates to draw upon. Besides these seven yards, which are dignified by the name of playgrounds, there were three sand gardens where only sand and shovels were furnished. Before you start entertaining visions of the little angels of days gone by and bemoaning the manners and behavior of kids these days, it should be pointed out that not everything was sunshine and puppy dogs in the 1887 MEHA report. At the Baldwin schoolyard, Chardon Court, the children were of the most untamable material and refused to be in the least appreciative when the matron spoke of the kindness of the women who had arranged the playgrounds. 
poo. They're paid for it, one boy remarked. Oh, no. They do it to give you a good time. Well, they are fools, then, was his comment. Roxbury Street Schoolyard was a difficult place. On the first day, nothing but the presence of a police officer quieted the older boys who were bent on mischief. That was soon over, however, and Mrs. Edson, the matron, did good work. Success breeds success, and with these reports of the progress made by the playground committee, philanthropists were making significant cash contributions, while a sand and gravel company provided raw materials free of charge, and a furniture company donated chairs for the supervising playground matrons. With an influx of funds, the number of playgrounds in Boston continued to increase rapidly over the coming years. The 1889 report for the committee noted the expansions and plans for the upcoming year. They included a note about an experiment with an indoor playground for days with bad weather, and a plan for the coming year to introduce a purpose-built playground, which wouldn't be dependent on a courtyard at a settlement house or access to a schoolyard. The playground report for 1889 is merely the report for 1888 written large. There were 11 playgrounds instead of 7. There were 1,000 instead of 400 children. There was double the number of toys, twice the amount of sand, and more than twice as many amusing and pathetic incidents. During the winter, fortune favored our committee. First, in the successful establishment of a playroom at Chief Street, Second, in inducing the city government to set aside a lot of land on Fellow Street at the South End as a playground, and to appropriate $1,000 to grade and grass it. Next year, we hope to have there our first open playground. Up to the present time, we have been sheltered by the protecting walls of the schoolyards, which is, by turns, an advantage and a disadvantage. The growing success of playgrounds made the city of Boston sit up and take notice. And in that same year, the Department of Parks and Recreation appropriated $1,000 for playground development. One of the first was an open-air gymnasium along the banks of the Charles River. It was designed by landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, with input from a Professor Dudley Sargent at Harvard. And it was described by Olmsted historian Cynthia Zychewski as the first scientifically designed and administered open-air gymnasium to be operated free of charge in a public park. It was built on a stretch of the newly created land along the Charles River between Leverett Street and Cambridge Street, or today, from the Old Charles River Dam to Longfellow Bridge. Playground activist Clarence Rainwater described how this playground was fenced, parked, equipped with swings, ladders, seesaws, a one-fifth mile running track, a sand garden, and provided with wading, rowing, and bathing facilities, all free to the public. At first, it was only open to men and older boys, but starting in 1891, a similar gymnasium opened on the far end of the Charles Bank that was open to women and girls. It was the first open-air gymnasium for girls in the world. A 1909 article in the Journal of Education hailed the addition of girls' facilities at Charles Bank. It is truly a picnic spot on its grassy circle, a running track for girl athletes, a training ground for girl gymnasts, a rotunda for motherly gossip, and a shelter for babies. A full generation has grown up there that now in turn sends its little ones to its shade. Long live Charles Bank, which, best of all, 
is now only one of many admirably equipped playgrounds under the wise control of the Park Commission and its superintendent, Mr. John A. Pettigrew, who, better than most men, knows how to unite sympathy and discipline, enthusiasm and wisdom, and love for the beautiful in nature with practical utility. In 1890, 30 acres were set aside as a playstead at Franklin Park. And then in 1894, Franklin Field was opened for rowdy games and active play among older children that wasn't seen as appropriate for the more reflective attitude of Franklin Park. These large and generous playgrounds were a start, but they weren't accessible by all children in all parts of the city. A new mayor would set out to change that in 1898. Josiah Quincy was elected mayor of Boston in 1896. He was the sixth prominent Bostonian to carry the name Josiah Quincy and the third Josiah Quincy to take office as the mayor. The centerpiece of his administration was massive spending on public works projects. A 1903 article in the New England Magazine by Joseph Lee, now considered one of the founders of the American playground movement, lays out how Mayor Quincy set out to create playgrounds for all children. But a few big fields are not enough. When Josiah Quincy was mayor, he saw that the great omission in our playground system was still the playground itself, and he set to work in a characteristically radical way to remove this deficiency. Through his efforts, a bill was passed by the legislature in 1898, providing that a sum not greater than half a million dollars could be spent by the park commissioners at the rate of not over 200000 a year in creating a system of playgrounds for the city. This money has been honestly, skillfully, and judiciously expended. And now, in addition to our big suburban fields and the playground portion of our 17th century common, we have some 22 local playgrounds in different parts of the city. 170 acres in all. With this legislation, the Commonwealth would join the Playground Committee and the Boston Parks Department in funding and operating playgrounds. They were joined in 1899 by the Boston Public Schools, who allocated $3,000 for year-round playgrounds. With three governmental agencies involved in playgrounds, it was time for the Playground Committee to reevaluate their role. Reflecting on these changes a decade later, Playground pioneer Kate Gannett Wells wrote in the Journal of Education, The so-called psychological moment had arrived for Miss Tower and her committee, either to form a large playground association or to put their work under the sole direction and support of the school committee. It had become rather difficult for the volunteers in the committee to arrange details of management. How much should each contribute? When a yard was just right for playground purposes, repairs on its schoolhouse often prevented its use. Plans could neither be made long ahead nor permanent, as the committee was a constantly changing body. Therefore, as the idea of the playgrounds had at least been permanently accepted, Miss Tower and her committee handed over to the school committee the work they had initiated and maintained. Playgrounds have become a matter of even legislative authority, but no legislature ever forecast its action from three small sand heaps. The women of the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association were out of the playground business, but they could take satisfaction in knowing that their efforts had inspired imitators in cities around the country. A 1925 article in the Journal of the Playground and Recreation Association of America notes, 
In Philadelphia in 1893, two summer playgrounds were started by philanthropic people. In 1895, the city council opened available schoolyards and appropriated $1,000 toward their maintenance. This amount was soon increased to $3,000. Sand gardens were started in Providence by the Children's Kindergarten Association in 1894. Other cities followed rapidly. In 1898, the New York School Committee took over the vacation schools, establishing 20 school playgrounds. In 1899, Brooklyn and Baltimore started their playgrounds. Cleveland, Minneapolis, and Denver had sand gardens in 1898. The first recreation pier in New York was opened in 1897. Philadelphia opened a play pier in 1898. Now that playgrounds were being opened around the country, and now that Boston's women had given up administering the movement they had created, it was time for the men to step in and claim credit. In 1900, Cabot heir Joseph Lee bought a vacant lot on Columbus Ave and opened it as a model playground. He published frequently on the topics of play and playgrounds, becoming known as the Grandfather of Play, or the Father of the American Playground, which is all well and good, except that he had taken up the subject a decade and a half after Boston's women had pioneered it. In 1906, Joseph Lee of Boston and Jane Adams of Hull House in Chicago were named as honorary vice presidents of the newly formed Playground Association of America. At a meeting held on April 12th at a YMCA in Washington, D.C., directors of agencies that ran playgrounds in 18 different cities and towns formed this new organization to promote the playground movement across the nation. One of their core principles was that inasmuch as play under proper conditions is essential to the health and the physical social, and moral well-being of the child, playgrounds are a necessity for all children as much as schools. Playgrounds during this era offered far more activities than just digging in the sand or climbing on a jungle gym. With the concept of structured, supervised play came team sports, pageants, parades, dressmaking and drawing classes, and all types of physical training. For somebody like Clarence Rainwater, Play was a comprehensive term. He said, It comprises more than a description of sand gardens or playgrounds for children, since the term play is used to embrace most of the activities occurring in social and community centers, in community music, drama and pageantry, and in community service and organization. The focus on drama and pageantry is evident in a pageant of the perfect city, produced in Boston by playground movement veterans in 1909. It was meant to showcase the ideals of a perfect modern metropolis and to position Boston as the perfect illustration of these ideals. According to Playground magazine, it depicted the development of the city as the home of man from the earliest conjectural days of the caveman through the period of Indian life and the colonial times to the present and on into the future symbolically suggesting the conditions that Boston 1915 is striving to create, the pageant of the perfect city. The venue for this pageant was the original Museum of Fine Arts building in Copley Square, and the sponsor was the Boston 1915 movement. Our current leadership in Boston has a plan for the future called Boston 2030, 
which looks ahead to the 400th anniversary of our city's founding and imagines improvements in housing, transit, walkability, technology, and other livability measures. Boston 1915 was the early 20th century equivalent, when 1915 was the future coming up on the horizon. The Massachusetts State Library describes the movement. In 1909, a special event with the stated purpose of imagining the future to help make Boston a better place by 1915 was held at the Old Art Museum in Copley Square from November 1st to the 27th. For a 25-cent admission fee to enter the 1915 Boston Exposition, Bostonians of 1909 could see exhibits on and hear lectures about improving life in Boston on topics ranging from public health to transportation. This idealized, forward-looking future of 1915 was the work of the Boston 1915 movement, a group of prominent business leaders and citizens that came together in 1909 to work for the betterment of the city of Boston. The movement established their own progressive thinking magazine called New Boston, a chronicle of progress in developing a greater and finer city under the auspices of the Boston 1915 movement. And they planned the exposition, modeled on the Columbian World Exposition held in Chicago in 1883, to introduce their city as it is to be. It was in service to these goals that the pageant of the perfect city was produced. And if we hadn't researched the playground movement, we may have never discovered this delightfully weird dramatization. The play featured over 1,500 performers and was organized into five acts, with the first three taking the audience through a tour of Boston during prehistoric times, then through Native American dominance to the coming of English settlers. As you might guess, the American imagination in 1909 produced a result that we would consider to be incredibly racist and paternalistic by our modern standards. Finally, in the fourth act, the audience was introduced to modern Boston. Accompanied by the stirring music of Elgar's pomp and circumstance, in splendid procession, Boston came forth, attended by the 30 neighboring cities and towns in the Metropolitan District. She was impersonated by a woman with white hair, but in the prime of life. The conception was stately and inspiring. Robed in blue, wearing on her head the gold dome of the State House, her ample train of blue and green gauze carried by seven young girls, representing the seven districts of the city of Boston, she stood on a slightly elevated dais, her districts disposing themselves around her in their relative geographical position, the folds of her blue-green train representing the waters of Boston Harbor. On either side of her were grouped the neighboring cities, each appropriately robed and bearing some symbol or insignia of her town. Lynn, for instance, as industry, carried a large cogwheel as a shield. Chelsea, recovering from her disastrous fire, wore the phoenix on her head as a crest. Canton carried the copper bells cast by Paul Revere, and Quincy, in granite-colored robes, carried the anchor to represent the shipbuilding industry. It was a splendid and imposing spectacle, instinctively calling forth the admiration of the stranger and the local pride of those who reside in the metropolitan district. The civic question for every citizen in this personified characterization of Boston and her neighbors was, is it true? Are these cities thus resplendent in their nobility and worth? Or can they be? Shall they be? And the answer varies according exactly to the local patriotism and civic determination of which the individual citizen is capable. The fifth act introduced a vision for Boston in the future, and among the goals for future Boston was increased playgrounds. 
This is one of the few predictions to actually come true. A 1948 Boston Planning Department report notes that Boston by that time had 104 playgrounds totaling over 650 acres, which was a notable accomplishment. The same report, however, notes that in some of the neighborhoods with the most densely packed populations and the most children per household, there were actually fewer playgrounds per square mile and per capita than in outlying areas. The report identifies increasing the number of playgrounds and the more equitable distribution of playgrounds for the future as key goals for the coming decades. Even today, some of the same goals persist. While there may be less focus on structured play these days, there is still a focus on using playgrounds to promote physical fitness. In our own neighborhood, the Parks Department rebuilt our local playground about three years ago, adding a spray deck, improving the play structures and basketball and tennis courts, and building in fitness equipment like ellipticals and pull-up bars. Much as increasing the number of playgrounds was a goal for the Boston 1915 movement, increasing open space is a goal for the Imagine Boston 2030 project, proving that when it comes to parks and playgrounds, the more things change, the more they stay the same. To learn more about Boston's role in the early playground movement, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 111. We'll have links to the articles and sources we quoted from this week, including the Massachusetts Emergency and Hygiene Association's annual reports from 1885, 1887, and 1889. We'll link to a 1903 article about Boston's playgrounds by so-called Father of Playgrounds Joseph Lee, as well as the 1909 retrospective about the first playgrounds by the actual mother of playgrounds, Kate Gannett Wells. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Inventing the Charles River, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.